Ah, now we're on. It's a privilege to be invited back to this pulpit, Steve. I appreciate it so much. I have a number of good friends here at Brookside. The Rod Lusks, the Randy Oswalds, the Bob Ports were all members of our church back in St. Louis. Uh, the Mark uh, Thingvalls, of course, his dad was my colleague in Wichita for a number of years. And, and of course, uh, Steve and Becky have been friends for nearly 30 years, and I value their friendship so much. I want to speak to you today, today on a supper parable, better known as the parable of the two sons. Not thinking of the prodigal and his elder brother, that is probably Jesus' most famous parable, but this one, uh, one of his least known. That was his longest. This is his shortest. However, the story I want to examine today has a number of striking similarities to the prodigal son and his brother. In both of these stories, both brothers had major flaws. The one who started out well ended up poorly. The one who started out poorly ended up well. In both of these stories, Jesus' purpose seems to be to send a strong message to the religious community that God's evaluation of our status with him can be very different from our own. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew 21. The text will be on the screen, but I encourage you to have your Bible open because we're going to look at the context pretty carefully. I'm going to be reading from the NIV because I think that communicates best. If you have a New American Standard Version, the order of this story will be a little different, but the substance is the same. So I'm reading from Matthew 21, beginning in verse 28. Jesus asked his listeners to put on their thinking caps. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted. The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent. And believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus never told a story out of the clear blue. Therefore, it's important for us to look at the background and the context of this particular story. It was Holy Week, as is evident from the first half of the chapter. On Palm Sunday, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. He cleansed the temple of the money changers and the merchandisers that were there. That night he went to Bethany, where he spent the evening with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Each morning he would get up and go into the city of Jerusalem, where he would teach in the temple. He went to the court of the Gentiles, because that is where the women and the Gentiles could join with the Jewish men 
and hear him communicate. According to the paragraph immediately preceding our parable, the religious elite of the day, whom, who are called here chief priests and elders, approach him while he is speaking in the temple. They angrily challenge him about his teaching, about his miracles, and especially about his utterly presumptuous act of shutting down their stock exchange in the temple. While he was doing that, they seemed paralyzed to respond to it. But now they've had a little while to think about it. And they demand an explanation from him. In verse 23, you see that they ask him two questions. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? Jesus replies with one question of his own. I'm reading from verse 24. Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? If we say from men, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Usually we find the religious leaders trying to impale Jesus on the horns of some kind of dilemma. This time he returns the favor. They feel boxed in, of course, because not simply had they rejected John's baptism, they had also rejected John's testimony about Jesus. John had said to them, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had called Jesus the Son of God. To accept John as a prophet would require that they accept Jesus as the Messiah. And this they simply would not do. But they can't openly reject John either for political reasons. The people think he's a prophet. Uh, so they claim agnosticism. They say they don't know the answer to Jesus' question. But in turn, Jesus refuses to answer their question. Instead, he tells them a story. A story that almost anyone in that day could relate to. I love the way Presbyterian pastor Earl Palmer sets this up and paints a picturesque scene of a farm family sitting down for breakfast. The father is planning out his day. And he turns to one of his sons and says, Son, will you go out and work in the South 40 today? To which the son responds, I will not. We're not told how the father responds to this very disrespectful attitude, but he can't be very pleased with it. However, instead of escalating the confrontation, he decides to let it go for now. He has made his will known to the son he lets it go. Then the father turns to his other son and says, will you go and work in the South 40? 
To which that son responds, I will, sir. He not only agrees, but he shows great respect to his father. And knowing the outcome of this story, I wouldn't be surprised if he added some more to his response. Perhaps he said something like this, I will be happy to work in your vineyard, father. I'm not like some other members of this family who like to freeload. When I was having my devotions just this morning, I was asking God to show me some way I could demonstrate my gratitude for all that you have provided for me. Dad, you've made my day. When can I get started? Do any of you parents relate to this story so far? I have two children, two sons as a matter of fact. My older son was a world-class compliant child all the time he was growing up. He was always agreeable, never defiant, always easy to manage, easy to travel with. He was a delight at the breakfast table. I have often said that if you put all the trouble he gave my wife and, and me into one day, it wouldn't reach till noon. He was just an amazing kid. And of course, I thought I was an amazing father. Uh, I just had very little patience with parents who allowed their children to be incorrigible. Thirteen years later, we had another son. And he was very different from his brother, right out of the starting gate. He was defiant, difficult to manage, disagreeable, a bear to travel with, a real pain at the breakfast table. I probably wouldn't be telling you that about him if things hadn't changed a lot over the years. He's now 29, married, father of two, accomplished engineer, drummer at our church, and he loves to come out to my farm and help me work. He is a son that I take great delight in today. But if the truth be told, I heard an awful lot of I will nots from that boy as he was growing up. By the way, I believe I told you this last June, one of our sons is adopted. One is a natural son. You know, of course, which is which. You're wrong. <laughs> the compliant child was the adopted one. The natural child was the rebellious one. Only my mother can explain that. <laughs> but let's recap. Here we have a story in which one boy is a pain at the breakfast table. The other is a delight at the breakfast table. Uh, every one of us knows which boy we would gravitate to. The problem is, this is not a breakfast parable. This is a supper parable. And at the supper table, things were a lot different. The boy who said, I will not, we are told, later changed his mind and went. The Greek word for changed his mind here is a word that's often translated repent. He thought about what he had said and what he had done. He realized he was wrong and he went out to the vineyard to work. The other boy had a 
change of mind as well. Despite his eager and respectful response to his father, I will, sir, he did not go. I don't know whether he got busy or some friends came by or he realized he couldn't get any more mileage out of this comparison between him and his brother. But he did not go. We're not told why. He just didn't do what he said he would do. Please recognize that both of these boys are flawed. One was defiant, the other disobedient. Neither is a paragon of virtue. And Jesus is not setting either one up as an example of how we ought to respond to the Heavenly Father. Now, the Father would like for us to say, I will, and then do it. It's important, however, for us to see that while both responses are flawed, they are not equivalent. And this is demonstrated as Jesus asks the religious leaders a very important question based upon the parable. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Maybe they don't realize they're being set up by this question because they eagerly respond the first. Jesus doesn't confirm or deny their answer, although they were certainly correct as far as they went. He's more interested in driving home the point that the second boy represents them in this parable. In fact, if you look at the very end of the chapter, it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people considered him a prophet. Jesus says, in effect, I tell you the truth, the most heinous sinners you can imagine are entering the kingdom instead of you. Because though they messed up big time at first, they repented and believed, and you proud religious types did not. Let's think about Jesus' answer for a moment. He says that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of them. Why does he pick these two classes of people? It's because the religious people of his day considered them the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth. Tax collectors were traitors who worked for Rome. Rome specified the minimum amount of tax they could collect, or must collect, but not the maximum. So they collected as much as they could and pocketed the difference. Tax collectors were rich and they were hated by the people. Prostitutes were generally poor and vulnerable. They had no one to protect them, not even Rome. The religious leaders felt it was safe to abuse them verbally and perhaps even use them on the side. Now, I wonder what terms Jesus might use if he were telling this story today. Instead of tax collectors and prostitutes, perhaps he would speak about potheads or gays and lesbians or porn addicts or meth heads, individuals who are held in low esteem by many religious people today. 
Surely, of course, Jesus is not saying that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom because they are tax collectors or prostitutes, but rather in spite of who they are. He's trying to shock the religious leaders into realizing that some individuals who happen to be very low on the moral pecking order have recognized and admitted their desperate condition, have repented, and have turned in faith to Jesus, and as a result, have been gloriously rescued. Jesus says that those who know they are sinners are nearer the kingdom than those conservative, judgmental, legalistic, self-righteous religious people of his day. Why? For, he says, John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. When John first appeared on the scene, the religious leaders were quite intrigued with him. And they went out of their way to see this eccentric and charismatic country preacher. Not unlike the Hollywood elites who, back in the early 50s, flocked to the early Billy Graham crusades. In John 5:35, Jesus says to these same spiritual leaders, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. But light always produces heat, and heat makes people uncomfortable. And these religious leaders soon walked away. John was not politically correct. He wasn't socially sensitive. He spoke too much about hell and sin. Jesus states here in verse 32 of Matthew 21 that even after the religious big shots saw the tax collectors and the prostitutes repenting, and the drunks getting sober, and the soldiers stopped swearing, and the womanizers becoming faithful husbands, they still refused to follow suit. After all, what did they have to repent of? Chuck Colson was a hatchet man for the, the Nixon White House, and his political enemies hated him. He was convicted of high crimes and misdemeanors and sent off to prison. But there God invaded his life and he found Jesus Christ. At first his political enemies scoffed at the notion of Colson finding religion. But he hadn't found religion. He had found Jesus. And there's a big difference. For the next four decades, Colson lived for Christ, writing solid theology, being the president of prison fellowship, um, being a prophet to our culture, really. After several decades, his enemies didn't scoff at him anymore, but neither did they follow him in repentance. I fully believe that Colson, who died just less than a year ago, entered the kingdom of God for eternity instead of them. What are the chief lessons that we should take away from this short story? I want to mention three of them. First of all, obedience is best judged not by what we say, but by what we do. This is a common theme in Scripture. Words are slippery things. Words are easy to utter. 
Anyone can say them, but deeds are costly. You're all familiar with James chapter 2, where the apostle says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Can that kind of faith save him? And the expected answer to that rhetorical question is, of course, no. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by deeds, is dead. It stinks. Interestingly, James also uses a prostitute as a positive example of the point he is making. He says, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Rahab was not righteous in regard to the chosen profession that she had, but God declared her righteous because of something she did. She took the spies who had told her about the true God, she believed them, she hid them on the roof of her home in Jericho, and God considered her righteous for it. Rahab could have talked a good line, but if she had not gone ahead and acted on her faith, it would have done her no good. Obedience is best judged, not by what we say, but by what we do. The second point that I would like for us to gather from this story is that one's initial response to God or to the gospel is not always final. And friends, that is a glorious truth for some people. I suspect if we had time here for all of us to share our faith stories, there would be many people who would admit that they didn't respond to the gospel the first time they heard it. Maybe not until the tenth time. Maybe not until the hundredth time. I'm always amazed at the patience and long-sufferingness of God who will reach out to us and pursue us Time and time again. There were five children in my birth family. My dad was a pastor. His last pastor was here in Omaha at Community Bible Church over on Q Street. And uh, four of his five children entered the ministry after him. That was not because he put any pressure on us at all. It's because he made ministry exciting and uh, We were attracted to it for that reason. But I had a little sister named Mary who walked away from the Lord at about age 15. She demonstrated her rebellion by smoking and by dating unbelievers. She eventually married one of them and uh, walked away completely from her faith and from the church. She walked away for 40 years. When we had family reunions, they were always uncomfortable when Mary was there. Because the rest of us would like to talk about the Lord, talk about church, talk shop. But we couldn't do it around her because she would get very angry. Now, my page is mixed up here. It's kind of an emotional story for me. About eight years ago, Mary and her husband Rob moved from Atlanta to Memphis. Mary had always maintained a good relationship with my dad, so 
She came to him one day and asked what she could do for him that would please him. He said, Mary, I would really be pleased if you would find a church in Memphis and attend. That isn't what she had in mind, but she wanted to do something nice for Dad. So the next Sunday, she and her husband visited the church closest to their house, which was Collierville Bible Church. Uh, I learned this. I looked it up on Google, found the pastor's name, and emailed him. Told him about Mary and Rob and said, if they returned to your church, I would love it if you could make a connection with them. They did, and he did. And they began to ask questions. My parents began to send them books to read. Eventually, a couple months later, they called my older brother, who's a retired pastor in Des Moines, and asked him if he would meet them halfway between Des Moines and Memphis. He did, and spent the day answering their questions. On Easter Sunday, 2005, Rob professed faith in Christ, and my sister returned to the faith of her childhood. Um, it was an amazing experience, and the result has been nothing short of stunning. They were baptized, they uh, joined the church, they got involved in Bible study. My sister joined a mission that has an orphanage in India. She's made three mission trips there. There's just been a total turnaround for them. My parents, who prayed for Rob and Mary every single day for 40 years, were overwhelmed with gratitude to God. My dad, who died 18 months later at age 91, said he felt like the old prophet Simeon in Luke chapter 2, who took the baby Jesus when his parents brought him to dedicate him in the temple and praised God, saying, Now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What's even more amazing to me than Mary's story is that God will accept some people even on their deathbeds when they have no opportunity to serve him, if they truly repent, he will receive them. The paradigm example of that, of course, is the thief on the cross. Um, he had only hours, maybe even minutes to live. There's not anything you can do for Christ with your hands and feet nailed to a cross. But Jesus said to him when he responded in faith, today you will be with me in paradise. Praise God that one's initial response to the gospel is not always final. That's a glorious truth for some, but it's a tragic truth for others. I've known people who have accepted the gospel rather glibly, professed faith openly, eagerly joined the church, and begin to serve Christ but in a few short years, their, their interest and excitement about the gospel wanes. They fade into the woodwork. They quit producing fruit. They seem to die on the vine. They may still attend church. They may still be respected in the Christian community. But they're only going through the motions. Perhaps some of you today are in that particular boat. 
Many professing Christians, I fear, are guilty of the Judas syndrome. You know, Judas was a very highly respected member of the 12 apostles. They gave him the job of overseeing their limited funds. He was the treasurer. And when Jesus at the Last Supper announced that one of them would betray him, not one of them said, I knew that Judas was a suspicious character. No. They each asked Jesus, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? They suspected themselves before they suspected Judas. Was Judas ever saved? I doubt it. Did he convince his colleagues that he was? Certainly. Had he convinced himself? Perhaps. And my point is not to create paranoia and fear among those who are truly born again, but to cause all of us to examine ourselves honestly before God. If you have said yes to Jesus, are you living out that commitment? Is it real? Can your friends and neighbors see the difference in your life? Has it made a difference in your lifestyle and your commitment? My third and final application is this. Where we end up in life is more important than where we start. The qualifications for the kingdom have nothing to do with one's past and everything to do with one's present and future. I don't say to you that your past is unimportant or that the mistakes you've made will not impact your life for good, but your history is not determinative of your future. Where you are spiritually today is far more important than where you have been. I think much confusion has come to the church through too strong of an emphasis upon a decision that has been made in the past. Many people when asked, uh, are, are you, how, do, how do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're going to heaven? Will respond with something like this. I invited Jesus into my heart when I was five. Or I got baptized when I was 12. Or I walked the aisle of a Billy Graham crusade when I was 24. I don't think those answers are necessarily heretical. But I think there's a far better answer. I know I am a child of God and I'm going to heaven. Because right now, I am trusting Jesus Christ and his death on the cross as the full payment for my sins. I acknowledge that I am more flawed and more sinful than I could ever have imagined. But I know that I'm more loved and accepted than I could ever have hoped. I know I have nothing on my record to merit God's approval, but I am right now resting in what Jesus did for me. Sometimes I think people feel estranged from God not because of sin in their life, so much as because of tragedy in their life. Maybe they've gone through a divorce or had an incurable disease come upon them or lost a dear loved one. Here once again, our past is not determinative of our future. 
It's okay to struggle. God will not abandon us, even if we drop out for a while. He offers us hope, and he offers us a future. Now, in conclusion, allow me to ask this question. What should we do with a Savior who admits dirty, rotten sinners into his presence, but at the same time rejects upstanding religious leaders with impeccable credentials? I think we should stand in awe of him. We should praise him. We should thank him. And I think we should join with Paul, a one-time Pharisee, who said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, how thankful I am to Christ Jesus our Lord for considering me worthy and appointing me to serve him, even though I used to scoff at the name of Christ. I hunted down his people, harming their, them in every way I could. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how kind and gracious the Lord is. This is a true saying, and everyone should believe it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I was the worst of them all. But that is why God had mercy on me. So that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Glory and honor to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. At the breakfast table, Paul said to God, I will not. But at the supper table, he said, I will. And God admitted him for all of eternity into his presence, and he is enjoying fellowship with the Father. What about you? Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for sending your one and only Son to be our Savior. Thank you, Father, that entry into your heaven is not based on intelligence or competence or credentials. For if it were, the brilliant and the industrious and the well-connected would have a leg up on us. Instead, it's based on a willingness to acknowledge our sin and to put our faith in Jesus, who is still inviting people to go work in his vineyard, in his kingdom. Now, if you've never surrendered your heart and will to Jesus, I want to suggest a sinner's prayer. If this is the prayer of your heart, I encourage you to say it silently after me. Father, I know that I have sinned. 
I have not even lived up to my own standards, much less yours. I have broken your law. I have violated your character. I humbly ask you to forgive me on the basis that Jesus died for me. He died in my place. I put my faith and trust in him today. Thank you, Father, for your promise that if we believe in Jesus, we can spend all of eternity with you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.